Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. I just talked with Brian DeMar about his really fascinating new book, Mao's Cultural Army, Drama Troops in China's Rural Revolution. This came out in 2015 with Cambridge University Press. Now, why do I think this is so fascinating? Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. I just talked with Brian DeMar about his really fascinating new book, Mao's Cultural Army, Drama Troops in China's Rural Revolution. This came out in 2015 with Cambridge University Press. Now, why do I think this is so fascinating? Well, one of the things that Brian does in this book is he brings us into the daily tactile material lived experience of the people who were involved in the uh, propaganda groups and the drama troops before, during, and after the Civil War in China. So rather than just getting an overview, but you'll get that as well, of the uh, travels, the workings, the institutions of these particular drama troops from the founding of the first ones all the way through to the end of the story, and rather than just getting an overview of the nature and the importance of some of the dramatic works that they established, developed, and performed, and you'll get that too, what we also hear about are you know, the, the kind of um, do-it-yourself spirit of some of these drama troops, dramatists, actors who are making do in, with really limited resources and getting out there and performing um, with the use of, you, you'll hear about pig bladders, you'll hear about um, gluten elephant noses, you're going to hear about images of rabbits giving birth, you're going to hear about people who are melting down petroleum jelly and just throwing stuff in there to make colors to kind of come up with a sort of face paint for the actors. You'll hear about all kinds of details like this. And for me, um, this is really what's so exciting about the texture of the story, the way that Brian was able to read his documentary archive, the archival materials memoirs to pull out some of these really salient tactile um, experiences of the people who um, were central to the story. So it's a fascinating story. I hope you enjoy. I'll leave you to it. And thank you as ever for listening and for your support. I'm here today to talk with Brian DeMar about his new book, Mao's Cultural Army. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Brian. And thanks very, very much for writing a really, really interesting book and also for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm looking forward to this. I'm always glad to talk all things Miles Cultural Army. Great. So, Brian, let's start at the beginning with a question that is traditional for the channel. How did you come to work on China and why this period of Chinese history particularly? It was a roundabout, haphazard, and uh, unthought-out series of decisions on my part that uh, trace all the way back to my days as an undergraduate at Occidental College. Uh, at the time, uh, a friend of mine suggested I take a class on East Asian religions because it was easy. 
I took it. I got a B minus or something and just discovered it really was not easy. But the professor who taught that class, Dale Wright, is, uh, was and is a tremendous teacher. And I, I just started taking classes with him and had a, actually an interest in uh, Chinese religion and was actually originally going to go to grad school to study uh, Chinese religions. But uh, along the way, I decided that I didn't want to talk about emptiness every day. Uh, and I switched to history uh, because that was really my natural inclinations. And uh, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but now I get to talk about emptiness once a year, which is absolutely perfect for me. As for this topic, um, it's uh, again, just a kind of a random haphazard decision that I decided to write a a paper about Peng Pai, who was uh, an organizer uh, for the communists in the 1920s in Guangdong. And um, that kind of sparked just uh, a profound interest in what I then called peasant revolutionary culture uh, that has kind of stayed with me throughout my grad years and now into uh, my years as a not so young historian. Great. So the book looks carefully, and also I think, um, and this will become clear, I'm sure, over the next hour, very, very fascinatingly, at the importance of propaganda teams and drama troops during a, a bunch of um, interlocked periods, right? The communist resistance of Japanese invasion, their victory um, in and after the Civil War, and their efforts at state building and solidification and consolidation of the regime in the early years of the PRC. So what brought you to this particular topic and to a focus on kind of drama and drama troops specifically? This came out of my dissertation. So the, the book is, is not a revision of my dissertation, but it, it did come out of it. My dissertation, which I wrote at UCLA under Professor Philip Huang, was about land reform and land reform political culture. And I was shamelessly borrowing the approach of one of my other advisors there, uh, the, the fabulous Lynn Hunt, uh, and looking at rhetoric and ritual as a way to investigate political culture. And I was really relying quite heavily on land reform novels written by Ding Ling, Jolie Bo, Zhang Ailing. And during seminar, one of my classmates from, from the PRC said, well, what about the white-haired girl? And I looked at her and I said, the, the, the who's this now? Uh, because uh, at that point, I, like many people who are not specialists on this, had never heard of the white-haired girl, which it turns out is an incredibly important land reform opera that's later made into a Cultural Revolution era ballet. And from that kind of initial conversation, I, I ended up writing one of the chapters of my dissertation about opera. And when I was doing research in China in the archives, I, I realized that no one was going to show me anything about land reform because the topic is just too sensitive then and even more so now. But I could get them to show me top uh, documents about drama troops because it was a much easier sell. I could say that I was just interested in uh, Chinese culture and, and Chinese opera. Mm -hmm. And that, that sounded much better to archivists. Of course, anyone who studies the Chinese revolution knows that everything is political and art is particularly political. But I was able to get some great documents. And when I finished my dissertation, um, I actually asked all my advisors this, but 
Professor Hunt was really the clearest, and, and she was really encouraging me to kind of further my investigation into opera because she thought that was the most promising avenue of, 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 of research coming directly out of the dissertation. <laughs> and, and, and so that's uh, kind of the genesis of how I started down the, the process of, of researching and writing the book. Awesome. So I was going to ask you actually to talk a little bit about the um, the relationship between the dissertation and the book and the, the process of going from one to the other. And so you've already started to talk a little bit about that. Is there anything else specifically about that transformative process, right, which is um, relatively unusual, right, to kind of go from a dissertation to kind of a taking a piece of it and then building that up um, into a book. Is there anything else about that process that stands out to you as particularly surprising or notable or, or kind of worth sharing um, for us right now? Well, I, I guess the way uh, I frame it is that my dissertation in the end was was more of a series of essays about land reform. Mm-hmm. Well, we can talk about this later, but the, uh, land reform is it's, it's such a huge topic that it's kind of difficult to write a book about land reform. Mm-hmm. So that the topic had kind of stymied me a little bit. Um, and only now am I able to kind of get back and, 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 and re-engage it. Um, and the other thing I'll just say is that it was, it was a huge challenge because there was so much more research to be done. And it was difficult as, a, you know, an early tenure track mm-hmm. assistant professor to do all that new research, publish, and, and still be you know on time for tenure. But the upside for any young graduate students out there is that when you're done, you can maybe then turn around and look back at your dissertation and say, well, I think now I'm ready to, to revisit this. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, and I think, yes, um, that <laughs> I completely um, feel where you're going there with the being an assistant professor and the pressures there. And the, mm-hmm. I totally get that. So let's get right into it because it's a fascinating book and it involves um, not just a really sensitive accounting of individuals who are members of these drama troops, um, a kind of overview of these drama troops, but also some really cool details that involve things like elephant noses and making your own face paint and um, pig bladders uh, that are used as bald caps. And so we're going to get to all of that. Um, so stay tuned, listeners, because that's one of the really, really cool things about this book are these really awesome details. Okay, but let's start before we get to the details at the beginning. Now, in a lot of ways, um, the book is all about the relationship between dramatic acting and political action. And this is laid out really nicely for us in the introduction. Now, when we come to the first chapter, um, you expand a little bit at the beginning on another thing that's really notable about the book, and this is true throughout the book, um, which is your thoughtfulness about and sensitivity to your source base, right? The kinds of sources with which and through which you're crafting this narrative. Now, chapter one looks at the era of red drama, okay, that's in quotes, which was the first communist cohort of cultural workers who, in the words of the book, experimented with cultural performance as propaganda. 
Now, this chapter draws um, really significantly on memoirs, on artist memoirs as a source base. And you talk um, early in this chapter about the reasons for doing that and the potential kind of challenges of doing that. So as our entree into the book and into this first chapter, can you talk about working with memoirs for you? Why was it important to do that? And how did that importantly shape um, what was happening here in this part of the book? Well, I I relied on memoirs because they were the only half-decent source that I could find. They are very problematic. They're they're written, for the most part, in the 1980s after the Cultural Revolution. So that always kind of colors, you know, the... The, the nature of these sources. They're, they're written very, very long after the fact. A lot of times they're written in, in very self-conscious challenges to Jiangqing and Cultural Revolution era productions and trying to kind of reclaim revolutionary art from the kind of disgraceful uh, period that it, it fell into under Jiangqing. Um, so so, so th- that's, you know, the, the problems. There, there's also, they all agree on certain essential truths of the communist revolution and the role of art in the communist revolution. Most significantly for me, they all agree that if you put on a good show and a peasant watches it, uh, then they will be won over by your political argument. If you put on a show about the rightness of fighting the Guomindang, they'll believe that. If you put on a show about uh, the necessity of, you know, collecting grain and giving it to the Red Army, they'll believe that. Uh, so, so they're they're far from perfect. But what I discovered is that there's so much great information in them that you they simply couldn't be discounted as a source. And when you read dozens and dozens of them, as I did, the discrepancies are what really starts to, to, to pop out. When, when, when someone talks about, for example, a failed show, uh, you know to, to tune in a little bit carefully to see what it is uh, they, they want. Um, and there's, a, there's just a, a tremendous resource when used very carefully, but they, you can't use them very hap- haphazardly. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. Um, early on, I presented a paper at AAS about the role of female propagandists mm. during this period. And uh, it, throughout the period, or throughout the entire period covered in my book, women play an incredibly important role in these, in these drama troops. Uh, and one of the things I was talking about in that paper was um, kind of how the women could go to the front line and they could uh, kind of conversate with uh, the, the, the Guomadang soldiers on the other side of the blockade and kind of soften their hearts. And Neil Diamant was the discussing for that panel. He's and awesome. I love him. He's great. <laughs> he's, Shout out he's to great. Neil. He's fabulous. Shout out to Neil. And uh, he's, he's been great. He's been giving me advice on, 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 on my work for, for years now. And uh, for those of you at home who know Neil, you may know that he was in the Israeli army. And what his comment was, Brian, I'm paraphrasing here. Mm-hmm. Brian, I've been to war. That's not how it works. Um, so, which is a fabulous comment because you cannot argue that because it turns out not, not, only Neil has actually been to war. So, but his point was very well taken in that, you know, just that there's a tendency to overstate in these documents, the effectiveness of, effectiveness of the troops, 
of, of what they were able to accomplish. So everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. You have to read them very carefully. But the the, the day-to-day details about putting on these shows, about organizing the troops, um, and you know, just the, for example, the tremendous stories that emerged from the Long March. Um, you, it, 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 it makes this a very uh, worthwhile um, source. And you know, unfortunately, there are no archival records from this this, this, this era, and the, the Chinese literature is um, a little bit uh, too glowing. But read carefully, these 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 are wonderful documents. Now the the harrowing nature, the really challenging nature of what it was to be in a drama troupe during this period very, very much comes out um, in this chapter. So after talking about the creation of Red Army propaganda teams and the establishment of these drama troops and also cultural education centers in the Jiangxi Soviet, which is what the chapter does early on, it moves us into an account of the experiences of three drama troops as they fled their base areas to the Northwest during the Long March. Now, the experience of doing this as you um, kind of bring us into in this part of the book could be not just harrowing, but also really dangerous. I mean, this was a kind of a really life-threatening experience. Some troop members were trapped into fighting, were taken into captivity. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that for you? Like, is there anything that stands out when you think about the experiences of these early drama troops and the, you know, the experiences that they faced during this long march period well first i want to talk about my experiences trying to track these drama troops on the long march it's not quite as as harrowing as the long march but it was very difficult because uh one thing that is true throughout the revolution is these drama troops change their names all the time and trying to just keep track of of who these people are um was was really quite difficult um but once i did that uh, a few things stuck out and i'll I'll start with the the, this this changing name business you know one of the drama troops um was uh, associated uh with jungle tao for a while and because of that they had to change they, they changed their name to reflect his attempt to kind of seize control of the party um so one of the things that struck me, actually the, the, the most striking thing, was that no matter how bad things were on the Long March, they still would carry out propaganda. They still would have a drama troupe. And one of the things I argue in this section is that it just reminds us how important uh, patronage was for cultural leaders. Mm-hmm. If you were a cultural leader, or sorry, for a, a political leader, if you were Mao Zedong, if you were John Guotel, you needed to have a drama troupe to kind of establish your credibilities as a leader, as a communist leader. There are ties back to that with, you know, Chinese elites who used to have their own private opera troops. Uh, but it, the, the, the fact that in the middle of a, a life and death march, that they would still stop and, and carry out propaganda and still rehearse shows was, was, was really, to me, the, the most striking aspect of, of this, along with the danger. And there, uh, particularly for uh, Li Bo Zhao, who's a, a, a leading female uh, party artist, she had to go through what I call the swamplands, um, or I, I guess I call it the grasslands, but swamplands would be more accurate, where you would, you know, kind of like a quicksand type situation where people just got sunk in and, 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 and died. She had to cross the, the, that, that terrain three times. So, um, and people were starving to death. 
Um, so the, the hairy nature of it is what really struck me. But at the same time that despite it all, they still insisted on, you know, carrying out their, their, their propaganda uh, to me was, was, was quite amazing. Right. Now you make the point um, kind of late in this chapter that at this early stage of the story, and we're going to kind of move on from this, revolutionary drama, in the words of the book, was little more than an ineffective weapon of war, but the communists kept supporting it and kept patronizing it, and this became really, really important. Now, as we move from here to chapter two, we move to the story of Chinese revolutionary drama in the era of Japanese invasion. Now, this chapter follows the deployment of propaganda teams and dramatic troops through the North China countryside. And it looks at three different um, troops in particular that exemplified three different ways of being a drama troupe. We've got the big drama troupe. We've got the kind of private um, professional drama troupe. And then we've got an amateur rural drama troupe. And we're going to talk about maybe at least one of them. Okay, so we start here with the Taihong Mountains Drama Troupe. And you tell us uh, in this chapter that this troupe has largely been ignored by historians, um, but they toured extensively, they established their own training school, they branched out into subsidiary troops. So they're actually kind of really important for the story. Now, they exemplified what you call the big drama troupe. Okay, so tell us why that's important. What do we need to understand about uh, the Taihong Mountains drama troupe or about this particular kind of troupe to understand what's important about the big drama troupe in this context? Well, first, I'll, I guess I'll point out that the, one of the main reasons that they are ignored is because they weren't in the, the main base area. They weren't based in Yan'an. And there's a tendency to really focus on Yan'an. One of the things I wanted to do in this book is to kind of shed light on kind of the lesser explored aspects of Chinese cultural production. Uh, the big drama troops toured mainly with the armed forces. So I, I suppose what I really want to do in, in this section is to show how, how difficult it was to balance, you know, their, their roles as people who are supposed to, you know, spread propaganda generally, but also specifically to the army. They also had to um, carry out political work. That was very difficult. This is another ongoing theme is that uh, my drama troupe members are, many of them are educated and they're very capable in terms of doing other types of political work. Uh, and they also were asked to raise money for the, the war effort. And this is one of the more interesting things I discovered was that, you know, long before the Yan'an talks, they were doing local shows with no political content, strictly to raise money. So uh, some of the ideas that kind of came out of or really are more well known from the Yan'an talks are kind of a actually happened outside of that main base area quite earlier. The other thing I've just emphasized about the Taihan Mountain Drama Troop is, is, is they encountered some puppet forces and part of the troop was was, was slaughtered. Uh, and the, the, the accounts that come through in memoirs about that encounter in, uh, in that North China village are really, again, very harrowing. It was a, a, a very dangerous thing. And I, I talk a lot about how they're acting out revolution on stage, but they just weren't playing revolution. It really was, um, you know, life and death situation for, for, for these actors. That's right. Thank you. 
Now, another one of the really striking things about this story is um, you bring us into the kind of material experience of what it was to be a member of one of these drama troops. And that involved in many cases, and certainly in the case of the Taihang Mountains drama troop, making do with scarce resources. And there's this moment that I have to mention because I love it, where you talk about them trying to make, um, quote, foreign noses for some of the actors for a performance, and they use gluten, but the gluten begins to rise like during the performance. And so these actors start looking like they have like elephant trunks instead of these noses. So the little details like this that are actually, um, I, I hope somebody reads this book and films some of this or integrates this into some <laughs> kind of screenplay or something because it's really striking and it's these details that are just super fascinating. Uh, and, uh, you know, that uh, I'm glad you picked up on that because this is one of the things that I, I really wanted to, to capture was how do you put on a show yeah. in the countryside with no resources? It's something that people just kind of assume, but how did it happen? How did it actually, you know, function on the ground? Mm-hmm. And the, the DIY method that this troop and later other amateurs use are, are, are really quite ingenious. Mm-hmm. But, and also the, I'll just point out about the noses is that for rural audiences, this was hilarious. But um, for the, the troop, they're trying to give you know a serious message and, and put on a professional show. It was a disaster. <laughs> and like your nose is growing while you're performing. I mean, <laughs> I just can't even. Okay. So there are two <laughs> other kinds of drama troops that you take us into. And just very briefly, I want to touch on um, one of them. This is the uh, Xiangyuan Rural Drama Troop. Now, they represented what you call professional private drama troops. And this is a really interesting story you take us into because when we learn about this kind of drama troupe, we learn about um, the kind of problems that some people were expressing and the sources that you used of getting these rural troop members to behave in certain ways. And here, um, the problem becomes getting them to give up opium. Um, so you talk here about, or the book talks about, um, opium users um, who are also members of these troops trying to circumvent um, restrictions against opium by uh, drinking uh, mud water, a liquid mash of opium, by eating poppy shells, right? And then finally, um, like what winds up working is that their salaries are given to their wives. And that's like the only thing that helps. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, this kind of issue? And maybe not opium specifically, if you're not particularly drawn to that, but these private professional drama troops, these rural drama troops, and the kinds of challenges that this posed in this in this uh, part of the story. Well, uh, so this turn to professionals was 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 new in the Jiangxi period. There was a, a deep distrust of professionals. They still don't trust them then. They're never going to really trust them. But by this point, the party accepts that they're going to need to co-opt some of these private troops to expand the, the cultural army. Um, but the, there's many suspicions they have about these artists, and many of them turn out to be true. The biggest one, as you said, is opium use. And here, let me just say, it took me forever to figure out what exactly is going on with these, these different opium concoctions that they're taking. And uh, it, it, it was very difficult because that's not something that you learn in Chinese 102 is, you know, ways to say opium mash. Right. But, um, but uh, again, so that was a big problem of getting them to, to give up opium. And what surprised me, I guess, is how long 
that drama troupe was under the nominal control of the party <laughs> and not reforming their ways at all. So it's years that they're working with the party, putting on um, you know, a mixture of, of, of traditional and, and modern shows um, and still using opium quite heavily. <laughs> and uh, this is something that I can't remember comes up with this troupe. The other thing that, that happens is improper male-female relations. These actors are considered to be... Um, you know, deviance in that way, gambling, all sorts of things. Um, and uh, just to wrap up, I, they, this is an ongoing pattern. Well, the party will come in, they'll say, okay, we've, we've solved this problem. And then two years later, oh, it turns out we didn't, but now we have. It's just an ongoing process. So listeners, somebody tell somebody at HBO that there is an amazing HBO TV show somewhere in here. Okay, seriously. <laughs> like, could you imagine? It would be like Deadwood only crossed with something like much, you know, but it would just be fabulous. So somebody please make this happen. And I'll just put that out there. And so when it happens, you can remember this moment. Um, this was the inspiration. Okay, so the rest of the chapter, uh, there's a lot more going on in this chapter that we won't have time to talk about in any kind of um, uh, detail, but I just want to flag some important themes that come up here. Um, and these, some of these themes you've already touched on. Um, you emphasize here in this chapter that the line between professional and amateur was really fuzzy and changeable and permeable. And also you mentioned the importance of traditional operas. Um, and this is one of the points of conflict that comes up early in the story here, and that's going to continue to come up um, later on when we get to some of the later chapters, there's a sort of, um, there's a tension between local culture and communist efforts to promote these dramas because rural audiences are continuing to favor traditional operas and not these sort of more contemporary political dramas. And so this creates um, kind of conflicts and we're going to see those conflicts rising again later on. Okay, so as we move to chapter three, we move to a story of revolutionary drama during the Civil War and the first half of the communists' implementation of land reform. So here we have land reform, right? We're getting to, um, we're getting mm -hmm. to the kind of core of land reform. Now, troops taught Maoist performance to, um, as you put it here in this chapter, the massive numbers of enemy soldiers captured by the PLA during the conflict. And you talk about the difficulties of the life of these performers, right? Um, during marches, ill or injured team members could be left behind. These marches were really difficult for women especially, and we've already kind of touched on that. Um, sometimes, you know, there were kind of guns misfired that were supposed to be used as props, but actually were real guns and people got killed. Performers stepped on landmines, all kinds of stuff. Now, one of the things for me that's really striking here is amid all of this um, difficulty, right, this sort of material difficulty, children are really, really important to these troops. There are a lot of children that are doing this work. And I, I uh, wondered if you could speak a little bit to the importance of children in this context, because it seems like there's a really interesting opportunity to speak to um, people who are interested in sort of the history of childhood and children here. That That's actually, for me, quite surprising in this context. Well, I, I guess the, the main point I'll, I, I emphasize is that, you know, there's no real conception of childhood as the special happy time for uh, our, 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 these, our, our cute little Chinese kids at this point. They're really just seen as little people and, you know, given tasks that we would not imagine giving to children today. And uh, they, you know, it, it, they're too young to be soldiers. So it makes sense to 
to, to put them on a drama troupe to, to entertain others. Um, that said, there were times when drama troops realized that what they were doing was simply too dangerous um, and would, you know, spin off their, their child actors to do some, something a little bit further away from the front line. But at the same time, there are stories of, you know, communist organizers going to an orphanage and quote unquote liberating the children so that they, they could go then join the drama troupe. Uh, and again, the said is that for some of the children, it actually turned out to be the start of a, 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 a fabulous career in the performing arts. Uh, but one would have to survive the Civil War first. Mm-hmm. So another thing that you talk about here in this story, um, or in this part of the story, which seems to be another important point of engagement or conflict, is the relationship between urban and rural. Now, during the urban takeover, drama troops brought land reform operas to new audiences. And you talk here about the ways that urban audiences are responding to these newly arrived cultural workers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because there's also kind of an interesting story of conflict happening there. Well, a lot of times these drama troops and their, their their messages weren't welcome. So they spent a lot of time dodging bricks being hurled at them by, by audiences who weren't necessarily so interested in the arrival of the, the, the communists. There was also a lot of interest, though, in the you know urban arrival of the, the, the PLA. So there, there was an interest to see what what the party was going to offer. So there, there, there's a... There is a conflict here. On one hand, there's, there's, you know, you don't like these strangers coming and you're afraid of what they might bring. But on the other hand, you, you, you do want to perhaps at least hear the message to, to know what you might be able to expect. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Now, as we move from here into the next chapter, we move into a chapter that offers close readings of three of the most important land reform operas that were used to mobilize for war and land reform. <clears throat> And the chapter not only takes us through um, the kind of overview of or an overview of these three operas, but also talks about some of the important plot structures and character archetypes that come up in these. Now, you've already mentioned one of them um, that comes up in this chapter, the white haired girl. There's also another one that you talk about, uh, Leo Hulan. But the third one is the one I want to ask you to talk a little bit about because the story of this actually carries through in interesting ways um, through the entire chapter. And this is a drama called, or a land reform opera called Red Leaf River. So what is Red Leaf River? What makes this um, particularly interesting? And can you introduce this for us a little bit? Red Leaf River is, in my opinion, the best land reform opera. Now. Yeah. <laughs> so the white haired girl is probably a better story, but it actually doesn't really concern land reform. It, this is one of the things about the, the so-called land reform operas. Most of them don't show land reform. Red Leaf River puts land reform on stage. So if you wanted to teach someone how to struggle a landlord, there's no better uh, way to teach it than by sitting them down and having watching Red Leaf River. Uh, very quickly, it's a story of a, a, a peasant family who are driven into poverty by an evil landlord who tricks them. Uh, he makes them pay all sorts of uh, uh, debts that they shouldn't pay. He makes them uh, pay for his opium. Like nearly all villains in land reform operas, this landlord is also an um, a, a sexual deviant who spends a lot of his time um, planning the sexual assault of the 
young wife of one of the uh, peasant male leads. This leads her to uh, kill herself. And her husband is distraught. He runs off. Uh, the, the, the village suffers. Eventually, the peasant male returns when the village is quote-unquote liberated, and he takes uh, a, a lead role in struggling the landlord who had sexually assaulted his wife. And that landlord, is a, he's a great example of, of one of these villains. He's just a completely evil guy, which means that all, the landlords are always the best characters in these shows because they're free to be interesting where the other characters have to be kind of uh, just um, boring, you know, kind of peasant heroes. And um, during the struggle, he actually fights back and he argues his case that, you know, he was born rich, you know, so, you know, that's just fate. And, you know, how, how, how dare these peasants curse him for being poor um, but of course, eventually he is successfully toppled. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so that's the overview of this land reform opera. Now, one of the really interesting things that happens in this chapter is you look at a particular drama troupe um, that was performing, right, and sort of looking for an audience for Red Leaf River, this particular uh, drama. Now, in this case, you used archival records to complicate and to kind of um, uh, deepen and transform a little bit a previous account by William Hinton of a 1948 performance of this particular drama in Longboat Village. So can you talk about that moment? Because that seems like an important moment in this chapter. What did you find in these documents? And like, how did this change how we understand this performance? Uh, well, first, this account that, that, that Hinton uh, gives is, uh, I believe I call it the, the most famous performance of the Land Reform Opera, because so many of us have read uh, Fan Shen, which uh, is uh, a, a, a tremendous book, well, a tremendously problematic book in the end. And as Hinton describes it, uh, and this, you know, of course, was my first entry into Land Reform uh, operas, is that, you know, he's in Longbow Village, our, our, our famous uh, you know, Shanxi village and uh, a drama troupe comes, they put on the show, everybody's crying, tears are running down everyone's face. They, they're captivated. They, they're, 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 they're passionate. And so, and, and as I make clear, I, I believe that what Hinton's saying is true. I don't think he made that up, but what I found in the archive was that this very drama troupe, and this is one of the, 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 it's one of those moments when you're doing research when you realize what you found and it's just so incredible but I found the archival documents about that exact drama troupe um, and they you know mention putting on a show for, for, for Hinton and what is surprising for those of us who have read Fan Shen is that it turns out that that show and all their modern shows were in fact quite unpopular they um, they faced incredible resistance from rural audiences who really wanted them to put on the old style shows at the regular times and the regular ways and, and really pushed back. Uh, and this is one of the things I try to emphasize throughout the book is the autonomy of audiences. Mm -hmm. The party could influence the drama troupe, but they couldn't demand that rural audiences suddenly embrace these modern shows. So in the case of Red Leaf River, 
uh, and I, I believe this to be true, is that this is the other thing I always remind my students is that if you are a farmer, life is not that interesting as fun. So if someone comes and they're going to put on Red Leaf River, you'll go, you'll watch it. If it's a good show, you'll like it. But if you have a choice, you're always going to choose your, 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 your traditional uh, a, a classic uh, opera. And that is exactly what happened. And, and one of the funny things, and as one of the drama troops discovered, is that the, um, the, the, the villagers would use ideas that they learned during land reform to struggle drama troops and to tell them that they need to serve the people and to kind of use the you know Maoist rhetoric to push back against revolutionary culture. Mm-hmm. So, um, so thank you so much. So as we move from here to the fifth chapter, you bring us into cultural work after the communist victory in the Civil War. And there's some really interesting stuff happening here um, at a congress in Beijing. So you bring us here into the All-China Literature and Arts Worker Representative Congress in Beijing in 1949. And one of the things that happens there or sort of in this context that seems like it's really important is there's a constitution adopted. And this is a constitution for the All-China Federation of Literary and Art Circles. You call this the Wenlian. So mm-hmm. This actually, this seems like it's important because it provides a framework for organizing artists and cultural work in the PRC. So can you talk a little bit about, a little bit about um, this Wenlian and, and sort of why and how is it important and significant for the story? Wenlian is the, is the organization that, that that controls cultural workers, and so this this becomes kind of the the, the framework for uh, you know the cultural army as they move forward. It ceases to be a a, a military organization, and it becomes a, a civilian one. So these various cultural workers they they need direction, they need. Uh, training, all of these things. So Wenlian provides the, the the structure for that, and it's throughout the nation. Uh, and you, what I like to do in this, uh, in as much as possible, is to kind of trace how these kind of ideals that the Wenlian puts forward are actually carried out uh, at the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the really interesting ways that this plays out is that you're showing us um, at the grassroots level. At least um, in terms of in this chapter, the uh, regional cultural workers who are heading out to the countryside as new agents of the PRC state, right, in this context, there were lots of challenges that these urban uh, artists are facing in rural society. Um, And you talk about some of these challenges that are happening, like, on the ground in Chapter 5. Um, now, one of the things that, that's really striking for me, and again, um, this kind of speaks to the importance of these really fascinating details that come out of the story, is you're taking us into the ways um, and really the material culture of the ways that amateur amateur dramatists and actors are staging state culture for village audiences and really the kind of material challenges that they encounter putting together scripts um, finding actors, matching actors with characters, training them, and then the you know getting creative in terms of actually staging these performances. Um, and here's where those bald caps made from disinfected pig bladders come in. Here's where they're like using grease paint for makeup. They're melting down petroleum jelly and just adding a whole bunch of random stuff to like make colors that they could 
then, you know, put on actors' faces. It's really, really interesting. So for you, um, thinking about this part of the story, what do you think is most interesting about this sort of these material challenges that are facing um, these dramatists and actors and the way that they are, you know, kind of engaging this DIY spirit to try mm-hmm. to work with mm-hmm. them and work around them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose uh, politically the most interesting or important point is that they were instructed to put on realistic shows. Mm-hmm. They, you know, that, that is very different from actually traditional opera, which it doesn't, care about realism at all, you know, so they'll pantomime, for example, a door opening and closing, no problem. Uh, but with, with these shows, they're supposed to be a reflection of village life. So you want to show your, uh, what we can now call a peasant audience, uh, peasant life and hold it up as a mirror. So that, hence this emphasis on realism, although again, no budget. So, uh, you have to look around and, you know, as you, as you said, figure out ways to have someone be bald, have, give someone a big nose so they can play a foreigner. Um, at the same time, the realism that the party's promoting here is Maoist realism. It has to uh, correspond to the way that, uh, you know, party ideology envisions the, the village to look like. So landlord characters have to be dressed up in silk gowns and, and fancy clothes, all your cadres have to be, you know, as simplistic and, uh, you know, uh, sturdy, you know, peasant types. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Okay, so as we move from here into the last two chapters before the conclusion, you bring us into two um, very specific case studies, the two specific localities um, that are quite different from each other as we move forward into the story. So chapter six looks at the deployment of revolutionary drama by Mao's cultural army, sort of to kind of um, name check the title, as the new PRC state conducted mass campaigns, including land reform campaigns, to consolidate the new regime in the early 50s. Now, you tell us here um, that these massive efforts had been kind of restricted during the Civil War by limitations in resources. Um, and a lot of those limitations have to do with kind of here and beyond um, not having enough people, basically, not having enough trained musicians and actors who are available um, to mobilize them. But then after winning the war, the military propaganda teams begin to be replaced with professional troops, right, and amateur village troops in the countryside. So Chapter 6 looks at this by focusing on the case of Hubei. In Hubei, communists, um, as you put it here in the book, organized civilian cultural work teams to promote land reform and other party initiatives. But there weren't enough work team members to go around, so part of their job became creating amateur drama troops at the village level. And there's all kinds of really interesting things that come out of this, this set of activities. Now, they collaborate with local artists and activists, and there are lots of problems that come from this collaboration. Um, And you you talk here again about drug use. You talk here about perceptions of sexual impropriety. Um, So let's just kind of open this up. What can you speak kind of briefly just to open up this moment for us to the what you take to be some of the most or maybe one or two of the most interesting and important conflicts um, that come out of this engagement with local artists and activists in Hubei, and, and why is this important for the larger story that the book is telling? 
Well, the, the one that comes to mind first is, is just the, the desire for our amateur troops to go professional. Uh, this is the, the party has long had this ideal of amateur troops. Um, you know, professionals seem a little untrustworthy. Amateurs cost nothing. This is what we really want. <laughs> but once you train some, some peasants to put on a show and they get there on stage, they generally would think, hey, this, is, uh, this beats farming. So they would, you know, quite naturally be inclined to see if they could go professional. So you have, again, this very blurry line between amateurs and professionals, and the party constantly trying to enforce that line. The, the other problem is just the persistence of tradition. This goes back to audience autonomy. The party was very clear that they wanted these amateurs to do shows in support of political campaigns, most importantly, land reform. And then also, however, um, <clears throat> the, marriage, uh, the marriage law campaign. But... There was a stubborn tendency for our amateurs, again, many of whom who want to be professionals, to just put on the old shows and maybe rename them. So you have some some funny moments where um, uh, for they would. This is especially true for the marriage campaign law, where they would put on a traditional show, they change the the title, they make the main characters cadres and and, and peasants. But it would just be a, a traditional show, many of which would go completely contrary to the spirit, if not the actual law of the uh, marriage law. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, the case that you bring us into in the next chapter is actually really different, right? So, in whereas um, we just talked about what's happening in Hubei, in Chapter 7, you bring us into the very different context of Shanxi. Now, Chapter 7 focuses in on the role of Shanxi's professional drama troops in the early PRC period, and this is really different from the case that we just talked about. Uh, Among other things, there was no sustained drive to develop amateur troops in Shanxi in the way that we saw in Hubei. So without that kind of large-scale campaign, the Shanxi audience was largely relying on performances by traveling private drama troops. Um, So this is uh, another really interesting case where you bring out the importance of kind of conflict here. Okay. Um, so one of the things that comes up here is something that you've already talked a little bit about. This is a, um, a desire by audiences to return to traditional opera, where at the same time the state wants the troops to continue to stage didactic political works, right? Um, so mm-hmm. this is one interesting thing that's happening. Did you want to speak to that at all um, in this particular context? Is there anything that you kind of haven't covered along those lines that you think might be interesting to, br- to raise in this context? Uh, I'll just add that um, along with doing traditional shows, the professionals also wanted to do high-tech traditional shows. They wanted to have special effects. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Ooh, ooh, rabbits giving birth. And ooh, yeah, can you talk about that? Like, we totally have to talk about that. I was going to ask you about that. And again, here I'll also point out that it's it's so incredibly difficult for me to try to imagine what these special effects are because it, it, it turns out they had projection units that they can project things on screens and they would pop up uh, and, and, and light. So it, it's really kind of like a modern Hollywood blockbuster where they, they want to put everything in 3D and have lots of explosions to draw on the audience. The exact same thing. And that's how uh, these professionals would, would market themselves, which points out that they're still relying on ticket sales for their income. They're still professional. They'll have subsidies 
from the state. But in the end, they are, you know, their livelihood depends on on audiences. And if audiences prefer to the traditional shows, that's what they're going to want to show. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll also add here that the drama troops didn't particularly enjoy the overlordship of the party. It involved a lot of training, uh, interference into everyday life, the endless meetings, and they would do their best to avoid party control. And you see all sorts of strategies that they that they that they use. And my favorite one is this: they, one of the, the very important Shanti drama troupe go, uh, goes on tour to another province and refuses to come back. Eventually, however, and it, it, it's you know, and there's a, a party representative in their in their troop who's communicating with the Sensi Department of Culture, and this is where I, I you know picked this up was from the archival record of the conversations. He's saying to them, to the he's saying to the party, look, give me a letter that 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 demands that they return and become a state-run troop, and the, the Department of Culture. They're insisting on this fiction that it has to be voluntary. So they're saying, we're not going to give you that. Just come back and become a volunteer to become a state troop. And they put pressure on the province where they're hiding out. So they leave, but they go to another province. And they put pressure on that province. At that point, they're in Xi'an. And eventually, they have no choice. They come back and they become a state-run troop. So you see all sorts of signs of, 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 of resistance but ultimately, if the party wanted you to become a state-run troop, you, 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 you could run, but you couldn't hide. So I have to ask you to talk about the rabbit giving birth, because at this point, if I was a listener, I would be like, what the hell was she talking about with the rabbit giving birth? So there are, there are troops that are like these high-tech special effects. What seems like is happening is troops are like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to project a whole bunch of flying animals on stage. And here's what else we're going to do. We're going to give you a 15-minute special effects scene here. And one of the images is going to be a rabbit giving birth. Okay, so I'm just going to hit the ball back to you at this point and just ask, like, WTF, you know, like, what's going on there? And and do you have a sense of... um, uh, can you just speak to this kind of what seems like really interesting efforts to experiment with the media of staging and the media of performance? Um, and do you have any sense of kind of what was inspiring these particular forms of this, these media that these stage groups were, plan, you know, were, were choosing to use like rabbits giving birth, like what's going on there? Here I have to note the limitation of my sources because this is this is from the archives. This is from the party's perspective, and it's it's, it's just a string of complaints really that they have. And going through it, I mean, there were other things that I found in there. I couldn't make heads or tails of it's what was going on. It's kind of more fun that way, right? It's kind of more fun that way. So, you know, like uh, there's one troop had this huge prop boat that took up the entire stage and that was a problem. Uh, another troop would, would would project anything that was discussed in the show. They project that as well. Um, so the, 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 the sources is from, are from the party's perspective. And these are all things that are problems. Um, so it, 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 it's difficult to, to get at what, you know, what the artists thought they were doing from an aesthetic viewpoint or, or what they were doing in terms of advancing the craft, because in the sources, it's, it's, it's universally derided as 
is, is uh, you know, a, a focus on, on spectacle, which is not what they want. They want to focus on ideology. I'm telling you, at least a mini series on HBO, if not a full, like full on TV, you know, TV series. We've got opium use. We've got drama. We've got improper or perceptions of improper sexual conduct. We've got rabbits giving birth. We've got sort of. <laughs> I mean, really, this is just waiting to happen. Okay, I, but I that I, I, I am completely on board with HBO uh, series. Excellent. <laughs> Okay, so Brian, we're now um, coming to the end of our conversation and coming toward the conclusion. And of course, there's a million billion things that we could talk about that we haven't touched on, right? There's so many individual um, dramatic performances and groups and cases that you bring us into in really interesting detail in the chapters that we've talked a little bit about. Given that, is there anything in particular that didn't come up that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? There is uh, one of the arguments that I'm really trying to advance with this book is it speaks to the nature of the, of the Maoist revolution. So, you know, I, I wrote this book about drama troops in part because they're inherently very interesting and hopefully uh, our listeners might, might, might agree. Uh, but I, I believe that they, they, they speak to the, again, the nature of, of, of Maoist revolution in that I mean, to go back to the long March, even when things were so, so bad, there had to be um, a drama troupe. And the incredible, important role that they played in land reform, which for me is the moment when the revolution really became real in the countryside. So one of the things that I, I think the last, the first sentence of the, the, the conclusion is that the Chinese revolution was a, a very theatrical event. That's right. And so in terms of land reform, there are roles that villagers had to learn how to play. If you were a, a farmer, you needed to now know what it meant to be a peasant. You needed to know what a landlord was. You needed to know what kind of language you would use when talking about a land. Or you, know, you needed to know how to suku, how to speak bitterness. And you needed to know how to, how to struggle your landlord. This was a, a highly theatrical event that it is not easy. So to go back to, to Fanchen, for example, there's great descriptions, although Hinton wasn't there, of, uh, of failed struggle meetings where people just don't know what to do. So, um, and careful readers might, might notice that when I talk about villagers, I don't refer to them as peasants until after land reform. Mm -hmm. So beforehand, I, you know, I, 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 they're villagers, they're farmers, but after land reform, after this experience of, 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 of learning new ways to act, which again is, is really uh, envisioned in these shows, they have these roles to play. Um, recently, some people have kind of seen the theatricality of the Chinese revolution as, as something of a, a sign of its weakness or its failure. But in my book, one of the things I want to show is that the, the theatricality of it all is really hardwired into Maoist revolution from the start. Thank you so much for that. So now that the book is out, what are you currently working on? Like what's inspiring you? What are, what, what can we hope to read next or in the future from you? Well, um, I'll, I'll just point out very quickly. I have uh, an article about illegal drama troops, Heiju Tuan, uh, that should be coming out in 20th century China in 2017. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, otherwise, I've, I've returned to my roots and I'm working on a, a book on land reform. I'm also actually editing with uh, my good friend uh, Li Fang Chun 
uh, an edited collection from Brill about land reform. But the, the book I'm writing is one that it took me a long time to, to figure out how to write it. I was chatting with a, a colleague last November, telling him I, was, I didn't know if I could ever figure out how to write the book. And then a month later, when I saw him again, I was able to say I, I figured it out uh, very quickly. Um, one of the problems with land reform is the overwhelming dominance of what I call the land reform narrative <laughs> of the village is feudal, uh, reactionary, work team comes, finds the poor peasants. There's, you know, plots from the evil landlords that are, are exposed and then you have struggle and everyone finds sense. And this narrative is basically accepted in Chinese accounts of land reform. And I was having trouble kind of getting around that narrative. And uh, I'll leave it very vague because uh, I still have to actually write the book. But um, I've decided that I'm going to embrace and, of course, problematize that narrative to kind of help structure the book. Well, best of luck with that. And thanks so much for taking time away from that to talk with me today about this book. So it's really been a pleasure, Brian. Thanks so much. Um, and uh, yeah, just thanks for taking the time to write this book and to talk with me about it. It's been a pleasure. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. And I, I had a blast uh, discussing it with you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us at the podcast and we will catch you next time.